Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Show podcast. Today on the pod, Vancouver receives $115 million to help build 40,000 new homes. Will it make a difference? And has the province from cold water on plans to shut down the park for Keith Baldy brings us for the week that was in politics. Plus, we do see a Vancouver man whose employer accidentally deposited $822,000 in his account on payday. And he didn't flee to Mexico. And the New York Times releases their list of the top 10 books of the year. And Vancouver author John Valant's book, Fireweather, makes a list. He joins us to discuss our response to wildfires. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Welcome back to the show. Uh, if you're joining us, uh, just joining us, give us a call on our buzz line. Uh, we were talking to Richard Zussman about um, the housing announcement made by Prime Minister Trudeau today, uh, promising 40,000 new homes to be built in the city of Vancouver and over the next decade. Uh, it's interesting that the federal government is um, uh, is actually going city to city. It's not like sort of a province-wide plan, but this is Vancouver. Expect announcements in Surrey and Burnaby uh, as well. We also talked a little bit about the park board and the fact that um, the provincial government expects uh, the Vancouver City Hall to do further consultation with First Nations communities in regards to uh, shutting down uh, the park board. Uh, and that may take a little bit longer. It may or may not. I don't know. But I don't, I'm sure the NDP don't want uh, any hassle, especially as they head into a, an election year. Give us a call on the buzz line. What do you think of the idea uh, of a park board uh, being uh, shut down sooner rather than later? 604-331. 2899. Now, one of the big announcements made earlier um, this month was a national dental program. Joining me now to talk a little bit about the federal government's national dental program uh, is our contributor, Jerry Merritt Judson. Hello. Hello, hello. How are you? I am fantastic, actually. It's a beautiful day outside. It is a beautiful day. It's a Friday. It's fabulous. Uh, And this is a pretty big announcement when when the federal liberals made this announcement earlier this week. Uh, And I understand you talked to some experts about um, what all this means. Indeed, I did, because I'm weirdly fascinated by the topic. I think that dental care access to people who I think it's bizarre. We have luxury bones in our face that you then need to have full (laughs) access to benefits and full time employment to maintain these luxury bones that tie into a lot more than just oral health. So I talked to Leanne Donnelly. She is an associate professor and director of community engagement at UBC's Faculty of Dentistry. And first and foremost, I wanted to get her first impression of the announcement. I'm cautiously optimistic that this is going to be beneficial. Anything that improves access to care for structurally vulnerable populations, I'm fully in support of. Part of what we haven't seen yet is the fee schedule that is going to be followed for this typical benefit. Like, are they going to follow the actual fee guide that provinces put forward that dentists should be charging? Is it going to be a reduced fee guide? Because that's going to impact whether or not dentists, dental hygienists, denturists, or dental therapists actually enroll to be a provider. I mean, we see that with a number of different public benefits right now because they do have a different fee guide that um, places will not um, accept that insurance. Okay, so if this fee guide is um, yeah less than the sort of median, I guess it disincentivizes right. them from offering and from providing right. these. Okay. So that's the one thing when I say I'm cautiously optimistic, it's the one thing that we don't know yet. Okay, so, that's, a, that's a nuanced I mean, sort of concern and I like that you brought that up. We just haven't seen it yet. So we've seen the basic basket of services, which I was happy to see. You know, I think the services provide 
comprehensive care to get people out of pain, to hopefully improve self-esteem through appearance. Hopefully it's also going to make people feel more comfortable with their social relations. You know, if you've got dentures that are falling out, you don't want to be eating in front of people. So it was nice to see that that was the removable prosthodontics was in there. I like the partial denture aspect too because sometimes what happens is a front tooth has to be removed. And if you can't replace it, um, that's a problem. It's actually almost worse to remove the tooth because then you leave somebody with a gaping hole in the front which impacts their ability to get employment, impacts their ability to smile, it impacts their ability to you know, develop social relations. So I am very cautiously optimistic about this and hopefully there will be enough providers. This kind of thing is incredibly important. This funding is incredibly important. Can you go in on sort of the what most people might not know about having access to dental health and how that would impact your life positively? The smile is the first thing that people see. And if people aren't comfortable smiling, it, ha- it, it has a lot more to do than just with with getting rid of pain. Pain can be emotional, pain can be mental. Um, and when somebody doesn't feel good about themselves, whether that's from actual tooth pain or just being uncomfortable with one's appearance, it has far-reaching implications. You know, the other population that I did a fair amount of work with were previously incarcerated individuals where dental care is offered within the correction system, but quite difficult. And they tend to get teeth removed and it decreases self-esteem. It impacts on mental health. I think it, it goes beyond just getting people out of pain. I think it contributes to overall well-being and also how, how others see us and perceive us. And I think that's the other important part about this access. It's not just to get something fixed. It's also to to start learning more about the health of the mouth and how to take care of it. What's interesting uh, in the announcement um, earlier this week is these are baby steps. I mean, it's not a wide swath of all Canadians here. We're talking no. about it's based on income at this point. Yeah. Some of us are fortunate to have extended health and benefits at yeah. work that can take care of that. Um, but one assumes once this announcement's been made now, it will slowly start including everybody that that, that can't get coverage through their employer. Perse- yeah, I mean, just maybe, right? It's, uh, yeah, just a, you have to, I think there's a level of proof that you have exactly zero access, whether that's through your spouse's um, dental program. It can't just be if, you're, if your dental benefits at work, it can't be like, well, if they don't cover it, the government will get the rest. No, no. it's, yeah, if you have exactly zero access, um, say if you're working, like stringing together two, three part-time jobs that might not give you insurance or something like that, then uh, then there's hope for you as well. There's a tiered system, too, in terms of coverage and stuff like that. So if you're making over $70,000, then only 60% of it will be covered. And then if you're making eighty dollars to eighty nine, then only 40% of it's going to be covered. It's a start. It's a start. It's a start. And I'm glad to see that maybe less people will have to make the decision to pull the tooth or fix the tooth. That's like what I'm here for. Yeah. No, that is absolutely true. I mean, we'd love in a perfect world to everybody to have dental, full dental coverage, but Mm -hmm. the costs are significant as well. Yeah. But it's a start. And I think that's great. Hopefully we move out towards the national daycare program as well that we yeah. can actually promise one day too. <laughs> Once again, it comes down to the dollars and whether we can afford it. So there you go, Jerry. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome to the week that was your definitive source for political news where we delve into the headlines, dissect the debates and analyze the events that have shaped the past seven days. Uh, joining me now to talk a little bit about the week that was is Keith Baldry, Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief. Hello, Keith. 
Happy Friday, Jazz. Happy Friday. Lots to talk about. Uh, let's touch on uh, the housing issue first and foremost. Prime Minister Trudeau uh, was in town today uh, announcing $115 million that he says will go towards fast-tracking over uh, 3,200 new housing units. And over 10 years, it will lead to 40,000 homes uh, being built across um, the city. Uh, now, what's interesting here is this is almost a city by city agreements that they're looking for. Of course, the you know we expect more announcements in Surrey and in Burnaby as well. On top of what Ravi Kailon, the housing minister here provincially, announced, and some municipalities have been announcing as well, what do you make of all this, all these housing announcements? I mean, part of me is worried that they're all a bit disjointed, that there isn't that cohesion. Your thoughts on all this? Well, I think it's the rollout of a program that's been long uh, anticipated. And keep in mind, the Liberals, the federal Liberals, are uh, getting ever near to either political extinction or a miracle recovery. And I'm talking about the next election. So they've got to start doing things, and that means spending money. Uh, so this is part of a $4 billion housing expenditure fund right across the country. Uh, and BC's share for this is, now it, it may sound like a lot, you know, 40,000 homes over the next decade. The problem is we need about, according to the BC Real Estate Association, because of high immigration levels, we need 43 housing housing units a year, uh, more than 215,000 units over a five-year period. So the provinces are expecting even more from this, from from the federal government. I think there's, so it's going to be, I'm curious, to, I haven't talked to him yet, whether Ravi Kalon, who was at the Trudeau announcement today and spoke as well, whether he had a private discussion with the prime minister saying, this is nice, but it's just the start, we need more. And the provinces have really been increasingly leaning on the feds to start providing more money to fund the infrastructure requirements that come with high levels of immigration. Uh, it's not just housing, there's other forms of infrastructure as well, but housing is first and foremost the priority in a place like British Columbia where housing shortage is so acute and the population uh, is increasing. We're, we're going to increase our population a minimal of 220,000 people over the next couple of years. And those people have to have a place to live. And that's why the Fed announcement is nice. But I think the provinces are going to say that's not enough. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the pe- other people at the announcement, of course, was Vancouver Mayor Ken Sim, who um, announced earlier that uh, he would like to see the park board gone, the electric park, electric Elected park board gone. There you go. Definitely not on electric. Yeah, yeah. Elected park board gone. And um, now Premier Eby had some comments on this uh, the other day. Uh, He was talking about um, a potential transition plan. Let's take a listen. We understand and we expect uh, that the city will be putting together a transition plan uh, so that we can understand how they anticipate dealing with the Indigenous engagement issues, the future of the staff, the future of the facilities. Uh, They uh, uh, took the first step yesterday, but there are many steps yet to go. And uh, we'll be looking to them for that transition plan. What do you make of this? Is is David Eby heading into an election year uh, getting cold feet, or do you think this will move forward? I mean, as, as Ken Sim just sort of handed him a mess that he doesn't need right about now? Well, it's not cold feet because it's not. It wasn't his initiative. It was it's Ken Sims. Mm. But um, no, I read into that the key phrase there were many steps. Uh, consult, consulting with First Nations is an important step. It was interesting. Um, a councillor tried to move a motion at that Parks Board meeting, uh, or the City Council meeting, to send this issue out for consultation with First Nation, and ABC uh, majority, from what I told, said no. It's a, it's a frivolous motion. 
Well, the reality is with UNDRIP now, the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, part of the fabric legally uh, and in terms of regulations, you have to consult with First Nations on pretty well everything these days. Um, and they're going to have to consult with, with the impact of First Nations uh, in this situation. That could be a lengthy process. And I've run this by some key people in government, and I don't disagree with the notion that we are talking about if the government were to do anything on this, because it does require Victoria, the provincial government, to amend the Vancouver Charter in the legislature with some amendments that would remove the reference to the Vancouver Parks Board. That's the only way this can be done. It can't be done by Ken Sim and his council. But for, to expect the NDP government to do that at a time when they're heading into an election year, with 2024 is going to be an election in, in October, if not earlier, uh, and create a fight in Vancouver potentially with some increasingly organized pro-parks board, ex-parks board commissioners, uh, where a place where NDP owns pretty well all but two seats is, I think, an unlikely scenario to develop. I just don't see them going there in an election year. If there is going to be an abolishing of the parks board, I suspect it will simply be able to lapse out of existence after the current term of the councillors expire. But certainly I'd be very surprised if there's legislation in front of the House this spring. That consultation process has to be a lengthy one. And drafting legislation has been a challenge in this government. That's why a lot of bills were late this year. Uh, they've got their hands full with drafting their own legislation, let alone something thrust upon them potentially by Vancouver Council. So does that not irk Ken Sim, who they have a very good relationship with, with and would not want to keep it that way? He'd like to see it gone sooner rather than later. Uh, does that not cause trouble with uh, Mayor Sim and his desires? Well, I think some of this has sort of kind of gone a little sideways for Mayor Sim. I, I don't think he anticipated the pushback. And what appears to be a very organized effort by more than by about two dozen ex parks board commissioners that uh, are sprinkled along all the municipal parties. It's become a, a controversy, and perhaps one cabinet minister mentioned it to me. He says maybe this is an out for Ken Sim that this, this tra- transition plan and consultation phase is going to take some time, and maybe that's going to lower the temperature here. But you're right; they they, they value their their relations. The NDP government values their relationship with uh, City Mayor Ken Sim. He's a, a validator of their housing policy. He shows up at government announcements as a, as a so-called validator. A much better relationship exists between this NDP government and Ken Sim than ever existed between his predecessor, Kennedy Stewart, mm-hmm. and this government, which really did not have a good relationship at all. And they want to keep it that way. I'm not sure this is the hill to die on for Ken Sim, though. I think there's other issues more pressing to him. He's more interested. At the end of the day, uh, more housing for Vancouver is a bigger issue than getting rid of the Vancouver Parks Board and other things that Vancouver needs, whether it's public safety mm-hmm. or housing. Those have got to be the top of mind issues for Ken Sim and his councillors, rather than picking what really is a needless fight with over the existence of, of a board that doesn't have a good reputation and doesn't have a lot of support, nevertheless can present a bit of a political problem for those who want to get rid of it. Now, one final question before we go to break and, and open the lines for calls, and that is um, the BC Conservatives and BC United. Um, John Rustad, BC Conservative leader, waded into the way he you know, started commenting on the park board issue and, and leaving it alone because it is elected officials. Uh, but there's been much chatter about potentially BC cons and BC United uh, uniting, or at least talks of them uniting. Have you heard anything in regards to any p- potential talk about uh, merging those two parties before the election? No, Rustad and uh, uh, Banman and Kevin Falcon all said, yeah, we could always talk, but no one, no meetings have been scheduled that I know of. And again, 
there's a couple big, big obstacles here. One is egos. Obviously, it's politics, so egos are always involved. So if there was a merger, who's going to be the leader? Is John Rostad actually going to step aside when he's ahead in the polls in favor of Kevin Falcon? Or is Falcon going to do that for a guy he kicked out of caucus? That seems very unlikely. Um, and then uh, John Rostad has made the point that, uh, sure, a merger, but along their lines, in their playing field. And he's talking about anti-SOGI issues, um, attacking the, uh, some of the vaccine measures, doctor, calling for Dr. Bonnie Henry to be fired. Those are positions not shared remotely by the, BC, by the BC United Party. So I can't see the BC United giving up all their principles to go take a real hard right turn under John Rustad, and I can't see Rustad abandoning his positions to take a more centrist right move to go to BC United. So I'd be very surprised if these guys get together. My guest is Keith Baldry. Let's go to the open lines. Let's go to Steve in Coquitlam. Hi, Steve. Uh, yeah, hi. I was just calling in regards. All this building that they're going to be putting up, is this for people that can't afford it in BC at the moment, or is it going to be for people that are immigrating to BC? Uh, Keith, you want to answer that? I would. I think all of the above would be, would be the answer, right? I would think, yeah, I would think um, all of the above. I mean, it's not social housing, but uh, all the housing is being built. There is going to be a, a continued component of social housing, but there really has to be new homes, um, condos, uh, townhomes, not building single-family detached dwellings anymore, or at least very few of them. These are basically apartment units, condos, stratas, and such to accommodate uh, the thousands of people that are moving to B.C. on an annual basis. The federal government has really increased the immigration levels. Trudeau talked about it today. I'll have a report on the news hour tonight on Global about this. About It is sort of balancing the need to attract more skilled workers. We're still not getting enough skilled workers on identifiable um, shortages. Uh, along with uh, making sure that infrastructure is there to to meet the increased demand, so it's a it's a looming problem that's really mushroomed in size the last couple of years, and it's going to get bigger for the next at least five years. So it's all types of housing. Yeah, I always find it interesting, Keith, that out of all the sort of G seven nations, we're probably the one that is so aggressive on immigration uh, compared to let's say the United States and many other nations. Australia well, uh, just cut theirs in half. Yeah. Yeah, and look at look at uh, the Netherlands and a right wing government getting elected in a very liberal area, of, a very liberal part of the world, and a lot of that conversation was based on the immigration levels and the impact it's having on that country, not just housing but on culture as well. So you know we're not immune to what we're seeing in other parts of the world as well. And I think it's a legitimate one. I and mean, if you're going to invite that many people, you better have the housing for it. That's for sure. Let's go to uh, Deb in Victoria. Hi, Deb. Hey, how are you doing, Jazz? I'm doing well. What's your question for the day? Oh, well, you know what? I just have to say that I just do not see the uh, BC Conservatives and the BC United amalgamating because they have completely different morals, principles, and values. Mm. And, you know, if, you know, if it's just a, if, uh, a power grab, I would not want to see the Conservatives amalgamate with the BC Liberals. Mm-hmm. It's just that simple. Well, it, it, and, and you, uh, your views, uh, I, I completely respect. The, the one thing, Keith, at the end of the day is that if that coalition of Conservatives and Federal Liberals, when they're together, they generally rule this province two-thirds of the time prior to 2017. But if that, uh, that, that, that merger or that coalition ever falls apart, it takes a while to put it back together again. It, it, it can take a while, and particularly in opposition, because um, it's just, again, people have to put aside their differences 
to come together against a party with which they have greater differences. So, but again, I think we've hit a point where the conservatives now have the edge in that that liberal conservative coalition, mm-hmm. at least in the public opinion polls, and they seem to have the momentum. So it's like, well, the liberals have to come to us. But given that the conservatives, like Rustad and Bandman, just will not abandon those policies that are just so uh, out of step with so many liberals, the chances of this merger, I think, are, are between nil and zero. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. It's going to be very interesting. It's, uh, you know, you can always sort of watch the ebb and flow of BC politics, but this is a very interesting period. And I think you've sort of uh, compared it to the early 1990s. And I think we, we may be replaying that um, again, but certainly it'll make for a very interesting 2024, that's for sure. Uh, Keith, we've run out of time. Thank you so much. Have yourself a wonderful weekend. You too, everyone. Well, you know, we all uh, have our routines when it comes to our finances, uh, and every two weeks uh, you get paid, and uh, this day and age, the money is deposited in your account. Well, our colleague here at CKNW, Phil Figueredo, who is a producer, uh, was doing just that, was checking his account, and he joins us now. He's going to tell us the story in regards to what happened. Phil, welcome. Jazz, thank you, sir. So walk me through, Phil. Uh, today was payday uh, throughout the Chorus uh, network, which, of course, is TV stations and radio stations across this country uh, and many other uh, outlets. Uh, tell me, uh, payday came, uh, and did you go look at your account like you usually do or no? So typically I don't really go and study my my bank account. Yeah. Uh, however, I had, uh, you know, I had a bunch of holiday hours that were owed to me, some yeah. bank time, so I knew I was going to be getting a little extra paycheck for, um, for those overtime hours. So yeah. this morning I was like, oh, it's the 15th. Like, let me just check and see how much... Um, I'm getting a little bit extra, especially towards the holiday season, which is kind of helpful. And so I, I open up my bank account and I had just woken up. I'm still, you know, rubbing the, the crust out of my eyes. Yeah. So this and is on your phone. This is on my phone. Yeah. yeah. And uh, open it up, look at my bank account and I'm like, I actually had to rub my eyes a second time. <laughs> Jazz, there was a deposit in my bank account for $822,279.73. Oh, my God. <laughs> Courtesy of the good folks at Chorus Entertainment. Oh so That's a lot of overtime. That's a lot of overtime. $822,000. Like, like, did you just sort of – did you have to – it must have looked at the screen a few times. Well, I looked at it and I was like, who – who did I, you know, make extremely happy? Uh, and then I was also kind of concerned because I'm like, who was supposed to get this money? <laughs> oh, never mind. It is from my employer. So it is it is legal. That's good. Um, but yeah, it was just strange. Really, really strange to wake up and see. And like, I don't know about you, but I typically don't have $800,000 just <laughs> sitting in my bank account. And so it was kind of a shock this morning when I woke up and saw it. But you know, I got to enjoy it a little bit today, came to the office and started telling everyone about it. I had a few people, you know, make some suggestions about, you know, what I should do with the money. And uh, I, I heard a few folks reminding you that you could have just gone straight to Mexico. Yeah, people were like, why are you still here? Get out of here. Go put it in a, you know, an account overseas and just, you know, go live the life somewhere else. Just, I had dis- people, just disappear. Totally. I had people suggest, like, go get approved for a mortgage. <laughs> you know, you could go do that and you have all that money. So, so uh, being a good employee that you are and a very honest fellow, uh, you did let the, the good folks at Chorus know, hey, I got yeah. paid $822,000 for the yeah. day. <laughs> I, I sent an email to payroll this morning 
after I'd had my fun with everyone around the office, asking them what everyone wanted for Christmas and yeah. no budget, whatever you want, I'll get it for you. <laughs> Finally, I went, went and sat down at my computer and, you know, I sent an email off to the quarter's payroll, but I put the subject pay error, question mark, question mark, oh. because like, I don't know, maybe you meant to give me that money. And they sent me an email back. Uh, I was going to put in the, in the email as well saying, you have 20 minutes to respond or I'm out of here. Then I figured I like my job and I wanted to keep it. <laughs> there you go. They responded back pretty briefly, like pretty quickly. And they yeah. were like, this is an insane error and we are going to fix this as soon as possible. So, um, yeah. And and that was after taxes. You were paid more than that. Yeah, that was after taxes. So they gave me, they gave me the <laughs> breakdown of, of like what happened. And technically it was $1.71 million. <laughs> One point seven one million. One point seven one million dollars. Wow, that's a lot of tax, tax and stuff. And that's what, like, once we started talking about that, I was like, "Wow!" <laughs> For one point seven million dollars being deposited in, into someone's account after taxes, people are like, "If you're making that much money, you're getting taxed almost a million dollars." That's insane. I, that's crazy. I know. So. Uh, to my understanding, because there's different rules and, and all that, but generally you can work uh, and, and overpayment does happen with payroll. It's not just here. It happens in many places. Uh, you can work out a way to pay back the employer in installments mm-hmm. or uh, if, if it's, you know, if there's a grievance filed, especially the employer, of course, uh, can bring a claim against the employee because the dollars that we're talking about. But I think that this probably happens a lot more than people think it does. Not, not in the 882,000. It, like that seems like a and, – and you know I spoke with, with payroll and they were obviously like, thank you so much for bringing this to our attention. Obviously, they would have caught it eventually. But apparently it was just some things that like slipped through the cracks and they have no idea how it didn't get caught. My bank has no idea how it didn't get flagged. Like everyone's like, we have no idea how this happened. You just got to figure a way to get it back to them now. Yeah, now I got to get it back to them, which – Darn. <laughs> <Got good life. laughs> yeah, oh, it's man. just it's it's crazy. It's just one of those things that uh, you know happened, and now I'm just sitting on this amount of money that I just don't want to give back. But well, well I hope uh, whatever account it's sitting in, you're getting some interest on on the dollars that are there temporarily. <laughs> yeah, I got I got to somehow make this benefit me some way somehow. <laughs> well, Phil, uh, you're a you're a great guy, and and as I said, a super honest guy. I'm glad you let everybody in the company know that it happened, and uh, you're working to get the money back. Hey, if you ever uh, have uh, $822,000 you want to send my way, my I'll take God. it. God, it, that's a lot of money, man. That's, that changes your life pretty quick. You can afford a condo in this city after Big all, time. Right? Big time, yeah. Not a house yet, but a condo, that's for sure. Uh, give me a call on the buzz line. would love to hear from you. If you were overpaid and you were allowed to keep the money, what would you do with $822,000? 604-331-2899. That's 604-331-2899. Uh, or you can email me at jazz at cknw.com. Phil, Thank you. Thanks, Jazz. Appreciate it. In May of 2016, wildfires broke out in northern Alberta. Uh, in total, the Fort McMurray fires burned approximately 579,000 hectares of land, uh, causing the evacuation of over 90,000 people, destroying 2,400 homes and businesses, including 530 other buildings that were damaged. And at its peak, there were over 2,000 firefighters working the fires daily, including helicopters uh, and 
uh, water bombers and firefighters are also brought in from the United States, Mexico, and from South Africa as well. Now, every year, uh, the New York Times book editors get together uh, and they have a very extensive uh, and lengthy debates of the best books of the year. They pick the top 10 best fiction books and the best five nonfiction books, and that's the top 10 list. Well, deciding, of course, the best books of the year isn't easy, uh, but they did. And one of those books that they chose was John Valiant's uh, book, Fireweather, The Making of a Beast. And that book was, of course, written about the extensive uh, Fort McMurray fire and the impact of it on that community and lessons learned from it as well. It is truly uh, a great um, accomplishment to be chosen as one of the top 10 books by the year by the New York Times. And John Valiant, of course, lives right here in Vancouver. So it's important to think we had him on the show once again. So, John, thank you for joining us today. Oh, it's my pleasure, Jazz. Uh, I do have to ask, what's, I mean, you know, the work uh, is extensive to, to put a book together, especially on a topic like this, when there's so many different people you have to speak to. First, first, first and foremost, what's it, just your thoughts on just being chosen in the top 10 books of the year by the New York Times? <laughs> it's, uh, I'm still pinching myself. It, it is, it's amazing. And, you know, there's some really big prizes out there. But in some ways, this one is the biggest prize of all. It really impacts sales. It impact, it's really noticed around the world. And it's just massive. And it's just a huge honor. And when I look at the other books, the other nine, you know, mm-hmm. these are amazing writers, amazing titles. And so to see my work among them is, you know, it's really just the honor of, a, you know, it's a career peak. Yeah, well, I I saw the I was reading the article and then I saw your work. I said John was on the show. We're going to have him on again because it is, uh, as I said, a really important accomplishment. Uh, let's go look back a little bit. What what convinced you to write a book on that particular wildfire in Fort McMurray? Well, the size of it and the intensity of it, and I think for so many of us in Canada, Fort McMurray is is you know it's such a powerhouse. Mm-hmm. And it's also so industrialized. And so it's very hard to imagine a natural or even, you know, semi-natural event overtaking it and actually driving everybody out of the city. You know, it was the largest, most rapid evacuation due to wildfire in modern times. And, you know, that would be one thing, you know, maybe, maybe out of, you know, some, you know, rural place that, you know, didn't have a lot of infrastructure, but... Um, Fort McMurray, in a way, because of the bitumen industry up there, is almost nothing but infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And yet, in spite of all that heavy equipment and all the, the skill and expertise that goes with that, the fire overcame everything. Mm-hmm. And that really frightened me, frankly. And as I learned more about the fire, the nature of it, the struggles that the, fire, uh, fighter, the, the, struggles that the firefighters had dealing with it, I thought, you know, this, uh, this isn't a one-off. You know, this is, maybe this is the new face of fire. Mm. And 2023, we just had the worst fire season in Canadian history by a long shot. And, and I'm afraid I was right. Mm. Uh, what impact did the fire, uh, based on your research, have on the people of Fort McMurray in that area? Well, I mean, these are tough, uh, resilient people, uh, very strong community values, really uh, strong work ethic. Uh, And even so, um, you know, many people left the city never to return. You know, the population has rebounded somewhat. A lot of jobs have been lost in part because uh, there's, you know, real downsizing happening in the bitumen industry as they automate. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the jobs aren't there the way they used to be, but also the people aren't there the way they used to be. New people have come in, but 
the you know people I spoke to, and I can only really speak for the people who spoke to me, mm-hmm. but a lot of people you know, were really disheartened and traumatized. And a lot of firefighters have lingering health issues uh, from breathing seriously toxic smoke literally for weeks on end. You know, it's impacted, you know, potentially the length of their lives. So nobody got out of that unscathed. And, you know, there's some really, there's some lingering, you know, psychic uh, and physical damage uh, that's just, you know, part part of the landscape now for that population. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and in the more I learned about that, the, you know, nobody wants that to happen to anybody else. And unfortunately, it happened to a lot of people this summer. But one of the reasons I wrote the book is to just to give people a, a serious heads up that this is a real risk out there and we need to take it serious. Do you think uh, that conversation, your book and the conversation that has uh, continued after that, is, I'm uh, not sure writing the ship is the right word, but do you think it's, it's leading to a broader discourse and perhaps firm policy decisions that get us to a point where we do start making that moving towards that direction of of a greener future uh one future that isn't based just on uh, fossil fuels oh you know without a doubt i mean there's a whole lot of people working on this file jazz and and and, you know we just had cop 28 in dubai you know there were a lot of oil lobbyists there but there were also a whole lot of people who are working really hard to um, facilitate an energy transition to uh, greener, lower carbon energy. And that is absolutely happening. It's uneven. Uh, but I think there was just an article earlier on your show about um, uh, EV vehicle uh, mm-hmm. purchases. And, you know, that's, that is a new world. You know, it's, that's happening really rapidly. But people are also talking about fire safety and community safety in ways that they weren't 10 years ago. And so, and I know that fire weather has been a part of that because people have read fire weather and gone to talk to their city councils. Mm -hmm. And as I've gone and toured the book around uh, Canada and the United States, you know, people are, they don't, they're not interested in it as an abstract story from far away. They're wondering, okay, what do we need to do in our community so this doesn't happen? Yeah, I just uh, had someone from UBC's forestry department on uh, the other day. They just received a, a private donation of $5 million to study forests and fire oh, wow. and what they need wow. to be doing moving forward. Uh, what kind yeah. of species we, we plant, how communities deal with it, what can we do naturally. So it was a fascinating conversation. I really enjoyed it. But I, in many ways, you're right, you know, in that we, we do have to rethink how we look at this issue. But I think one of the things that the public and many people sometimes don't understand is that this is going to be an uneven fight at the end of the day. As you said with the COP26, you had oil lobbyists there. It's in United Arab Emirates, not exactly the place that's going to lead the way in some, in many cases when it comes to going (laughs) green. But it is an uneven journey, but it is a journey that still is occurring, but it sometimes can be quite depressing when you say not enough is being done. Well, you know, I mean, our own William Gibson, who lives right here in Vancouver, too, a brilliant futurist and science fiction writer, very famous man. He said, the future is here. It's just not evenly distributed. Mm. And I think that's really true. And I think that's really true, particularly true in the case of uh, the energy transition that is underway right now as you and I talk to each other. It's very exciting. It's not happening nearly fast enough or soon enough for many people, but it's inevitable. And the 21st century is going to be a different century for energy, and it's also unfortunately going to be a different century for fire. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's the most important part. I think even today uh, there was a story that I saw that the federal government is looking at a federal emergency response agency being set up just because of wildfires in this country, uh, similar to the FEMA in the U.S. So it is it is uneven, but uh, it is slowly uh, being addressed, that is for sure. But, John, at its core, I wanted to have you back on the show more than anything to say congratulations to you. It's important work that you've done and being voted as top 10, one of the top 10 books of the year by the New York Times. It is a true accomplishment, even better because – uh, you're, you're a Vancouver uh, resident, and I think Vancouverites and British Columbians need to be celebrating that as well. Thank you so much. Jazz, it's really my pleasure and my honor. Thanks so much for uh, speaking with me. Goodbye now is over. That's all, thank you. All right, that's a wrap. It's Friday, and this is The Wrap on the Jazz Joe Hall Show. Thank God it's this uh, week we ask, have you had enough? Has tipping fatigue finally arrived in North America? And what if your employer overpaid you by $822,000 and you were allowed to keep the money? What would you do with it? Joining us today is Sarah Daniels. She is a real estate agent in South Surrey. She's an author and broadcaster. And also joining us today is our contributor, Jerry Mayer uh, Judson. Jerry, Sarah, Welcome. Thanks so much. Hey there, bonjour. Let's talk about tipping. Well, we learned uh, in uh, late November uh, that uh, people are being getting frustrated by ubiquitous requests for gratuities, and that came out in numbers in the U.S. As of no- uh, November, the service sector workers in non-restaurant, leisure, and hospitality jobs made a buck twenty-eight an hour in tips on average. That's down seven percent uh, from right. a, a year prior. Now, the data is according to an analysis of three hundred thousand small and medium-sized businesses by payroll provider Gusto. Now, the tipping slowdown is a gloomy development for all types of workers who rely on holiday tips as a chunk of their annual income, but it reflects a broad frustration with the proliferation of tip requests as dry cleaners, bridal boutiques uh, to coffee shops are uh, springing up when asking you for a tip. Let me go to you first, uh, Sarah. Uh, Do you think this, uh, we're reaching a point where we're just saying that's enough, uh, tipping fatigue is now completely a part of culture now? I, I feel like it depends on the situation. So I order every day from a local Starbucks. I do the mobile order and I always tip. But I see these girls every day. They know my order. They're like, hi, Sarah, how are you? And I tease them. So I'm always going to tip them. I mean, I don't know if people do on mobile orders, especially if you have like somewhere local. So for them, for sure. But for instance, today I was I was downtown at a condo um, waiting for an inspection to happen. I decided, okay, I'm just going to trot down the street and get something from Subway. Mm-hmm. Got a sandwich from Subway, and the automatic tip thing came up, and it was the minimum was 15%, which I thought was a lot for getting a Subway sandwich. On the flip side of that, I do feel badly because, you know, these are entry-level jobs. They mm-hmm. don't pay a lot. Um, they don't often have the opportunity for tipping in any other way. Um, so I'm kind of... I'm kind of torn. I feel like we're making up for what employers are not doing, I mm. guess is what I, I really think. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you have a good point there. And one point I would argue with, though, is is you're right. These are entry-level jobs, but minimum wage in British Columbia has been going up. Yeah, Would we like sure. to see more of it? Absolutely. Um, Jerry, what about you? Like, I, I have no problem tipping. I think it's important to tip. 
But I sometimes, you know, and, and, and uh, you know, Sarah gives a great example of going to the subway and automatically it's a 15 percent tip they minimum. ask you. Minimum, That's right? That's the minimum option. That's the minimum option. Yeah, and you just kind of go, come on. It should be – wasn't it at a point where it's supposed to be exceptional service rather than just doing your job? Uh, how do you deal with the ch- tipping issue? I – okay. So when I <laughs> – it's tough for me. I've been a service employee and I think that tipping, I've been in industries where you are expected to tip or it's nice if you tip. And I've been in industries where tipping would be weird. And in those instances, I think that I can confirm as the service employee, like providing counter service, giving you a coffee or getting you a baked good or something like that. I never expected to be tipped. Even when the machine would prompt every single person, I would, it was, it was a nice thing that I appreciated. My day was made when you did, but my day was not ruined when you didn't. I know it feels weird to press three separate buttons to bypass the tip option, and you feel like a, a, a choice schmuck. word that I won't repeat. You feel now. like schmuck. a schmuck. You feel like you're like you feel like the, in the arms of the angels by Sarah McLaughlin starts playing as you look at this poor service employee, yeah. and you're like, this is probably <laughs> one of two jobs, and I'm so sorry, but I do have to hit the red button or press the number zero. But it, on the flip side of that, I have a lot of tipping anxiety, and I remember the other day, mm-hmm. I'm not going to say the restaurant, but I had one of probably the worst dining experiences of my life, and uh, they weren't right. They weren't actively rude to me or anything, but they. Uh, I don't know. My food was cold. It was a whole thing, and I'd been waiting wow. for it. whatever, whatever. But I was like, this guy, and it was boy howdy, the waiter. But this guy is only getting fifteen percent of my bill. Like, what is that? Back in the day, yeah. I feel like you could deny the tip without feeling like you were making the difference between someone paying rent and not paying rent. You know what I mean? Yeah. Now, here's the weird thing is what I did the other day is I was actually in winners Mm -hmm. and the girl that that helped me when I was like at the checkout was just so funny and so lovely. So I left and we were like laughing as I left. I had to go to Purdy's nearby because I was picking up some client gifts and I bought some extra. I went back to the cashier and I gave her a candy cane and a thing of hot uh, like hot chocolate mix from Purdy's. But the thing was, she was so awesome. And I thought, like, you know what? I'd like I've got, I'm going to go buy some extra and Merry Christmas to her. So I like to be able to do those kind of things. But when it feels like, you know, it's a chore and there is that guilt mm-hmm. that is associated with like, yeah, I'm going to keep on pressing like the buttons until I get to like no tip and you feel like a schmuck. I mean, I guess they're sort of preying on that to a certain extent, and they know that that this is going to actually be part of it. And you know what? At the end of the day, if we uh, paid uh, a little People more, better. just as employers paid more and mm-hmm. were forced to do so, uh, and minimum wage kept going up, which it is now in British Columbia based on the cost of living, uh, we wouldn't. these workers wouldn't have to rely on those tips either. So the industry, I think, have, have been relying on tips a little too much. 100%. And yes. that's part of the issue yeah. as well. Well, today at CKNW, uh, every two weeks, of course, like any other employer, it's payday. It's Friday. It's payday here. Uh, one of our colleagues, uh, colleague, uh, Phil Figueredo, uh, um, had uh, worked some overtime, and he decided to cash some of that overtime and uh, on top of his regular pay. And so today is payday, and he thought he'd go check the bank account and see uh, if it was cashed, and he got a little bit extra pay right before Christmas. Uh, Phil right. was on our show uh, just a, a couple of hours ago, an hour ago, and uh, we asked him to explain what he saw. Take a listen. Typically, I don't really go and study my my bank account. <laughs> yeah. uh, however, yeah. this morning, I was like, oh, it's the 15th. Like, Let me just check and see how much... Um, I'm getting a little bit extra, especially towards the holiday season, which is kind of helpful. And so I, I open up my bank account and I had just woken up. I'm still, you know, rubbing the, the crust out of my eyes. Yeah. So this and is on your phone. This is on my phone. Yeah. yeah. And uh, open it up. 
I look at my bank account and I'm like, I actually had to rub my eyes a second time. <laughs> Jazz, there was a deposit in my bank account for $822,279.73. Oh, my God. <laughs> nice. Yes. And guess what? It's still there. Now he's got to figure out how to return it. Uh, by the way, Sarah. Why? Why? No, no, no. Hold on. Hold on. First of all, I, I would like to say I'm, I'm very happy that CKNW and the associated companies are so flush with cash that they can actually make that kind of instant deposit. That's good news, everybody. We're feeling good about that. But secondly, they should give him a reward for pointing it out because you know how corporate finance works. They'd be lucky to figure this one out like six months from now. Finder's fee. You know how many of us said, what are you doing here? Why aren't you in Mexico? (laughs) I'm like, I I mean, forget the what were you going to do with the money if you could keep it. I'm more along along the lines of, and of course, I would never advocate for this, but like Swiss bank account, transfer the money, get the hell (laughs) out of Dodge. I know. I actually recommended the Caymans, but yeah, I saved them. You did. You're like, why are you? (laughs) Just, Just get the bank draft. Get the hell out of Dodge. Yes. You know, don't let the door hit you on the ass on the way out. Oh, Goodbye, by the way, Irene. That was, uh, Sarah, that, by the way, 822000 that's after taxes. He was actually paid $1.7 million. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my <laughs> God. So that's even better. They taxed him yeah. very heavily, by the way, because 50% withholding is a bit obscene. Yeah. But nonetheless. A, he was like, oh, I paid a lot in tax. I go, well, that's what happens. That's why a lot of rich folks want tax cuts all the time, because they pay 50% or more. So there you Here's go. The, but the behind the scene thing, though, is has has court like whoever owns. I can't even remember who owns CKNW chorus, now. Chorus. Corey, it is chorus because yeah. it wasn't and then it was. I can't keep track. Have they actually expedited that that tax withheld money? to Revenue Canada, because that will be the funny thing trying to get that sucker back. I I mean, there's the story, people. Yeah, exactly. This is important. The moral of the story is do not forget to put a decimal anywhere if you work in payroll. (laughs) That is the importance of one singular keystroke. In my life, I've missed a bajillion keystrokes to less less fiduciary consequences. (laughs) Anyway, Phil's working out. I'm serious. I, I do wonder, because... I do know that payroll, they, they're automatic payments made to Revenue Canada, right? Because it's like, you know, you like it's an installment payment thing that we make when our, if we have an actual employer. Like I'm self-employed, so it doesn't work that way. But your actual employer is making installment payments on your behalf to Revenue Canada. There could be like, you know, $900,000 that just got transferred to Revenue Canada <laughs> for no apparent reason. Good luck, Chorus, yeah. getting that back. Good, well, Good luck. They'll figure it out. I'm sure Phil, Phil's working out uh, how he can get that money back to them because he is a, a, an honest fellow, which is a wonderful thing. Uh, but if you were, <laughs> if you did have 820000 uh, deposited in your account and you could keep it, what would you do with it, Sarah? I, You know what? I am a sucker for this time of year. I would be given a whole crap load of money to the food banks. Aww. I'd be given a whole crap of money to, like, all the families with like kids and stuff like that at this time of year. I'm lucky. Like my mom asks me every, like my mom will ask me, what do you want for Christmas? I can buy everything I need. I'm a very lucky person. I do not take that for granted, but there are a lot of people that are not in the same position as me. I've given a lot of money to the food bank this year. I've still got more donations to make. I would really like to be like, I, you know, obviously I'm no saint. I'll keep some of the money myself, obviously, but Mm. I would be, you know, at this time of year in particular, right. When so many people are suffering, you want to be able to, to spread the wealth around. Yeah, absolutely. What about you, Jerry? I'm about to sound like such a selfish no, no. schmuck right now because the first thing I thought of, I was like, if I just had 
$800,000 property ownership. I am buying my house. Oh, yeah. I'm buying a condominium. I'm buying a nice, I'm going to buy a two bedroom condo with air conditioning. That's yeah. what I'm doing instantly. In Vancouver with 800000 Good luck well, with a that. Little, little, maybe Langley. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. yeah. I, can, I can talk to you about yeah, that. Perfect. We, I would, yeah, yeah. The first phone call I would make, Sarah, would be you. <laughs> I, I love Listen. it when you lie to me, honey. Good for you. <laughs> that's, but that's true. Like For that kind of money, you're not going to get a seat. But in Calgary, if you went and moved back to your hometown. Oh, it's a mansion. I could get a, oh such a nice, an updated townhouse with central air in a suburb. It would be and you know what? If, you if, if, you, if you had that Probably, money right yeah. now. If you had that money right now and moved back, you'd be just in time to see your premier host, uh, Tucker Carlson, for a big speech next next month. That would be super exciting in Alberta. I'm very proud of where I live. I apologize to Albertans, but, you know, come on. I apologize for Albertans. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) That is is true. Well, you know what? Good on Phil for uh, noticing it. And he was noticed actually for a few days. So my advice to him, make sure it's in a nice high interest account. So while you're working, trying to get that money back for a couple of days. Make the money work for you. Make the money work for you. A couple of days of interest never hurts anybody, right? Oh, my God. That's honest. That's the finder's fee. $822,000 collecting at least 3 4% interest in the account. That's not bad. That's bad. Cayman Island. Baby, Cayman Islands. Well, we worked it out that he'd get about $100 in interest a day if he just kept nice. it in one of his accounts. So it's not bad. Actually. It's not bad. I think that's the that's a lawful neutral alignment thing to do. Lawful good exactly. is that the exactly. thing to do. Me, Revenue Canada will make this different, difficult for him if there's like all sorts. So, chorus lawyers, you better be nice to this guy. Yeah, come ex- on. Exactly. Sarah, thank you. Thank you, guys. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.